Father, I want to thank you for the power and the authority of your word. Lord, I pray that tonight it would ring true. I pray that the truth that we touch on tonight would, would sink deep. Because, Father, it's a truth that people are wanting to discard. They are wanting to set aside. It is bold. It is daring. Um, and at points in your word, it may be confusing. And we're going to seek to clarify that. So give us wisdom, God, by your spirit. We need wisdom. But, Father, I pray as you bring clarity, Lord, I pray that you would reveal such rich truth in your word. And that we would be a people who would walk in the freedom that you secured for, for us at the cross. And we ask this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I remember years and years ago, I was going door to door doing follow-up on a, an evangelistic newspaper that our church had been sending out for, at that point, I think maybe six months to a year. So I was going door to door. And part of what I needed to do was not just find out if they were reading it or round filing it, you know, that throw it in the trash can, okay? And, but I wanted, to, I wanted to have opportunities to witness. And so my pastor uh, really challenged me to have a gospel outline memorized and kind of flow with that. You know, you don't necessarily start at point one and go through point four, um, but you, you do want to share the, the whole gospel. When you're done. So um, I did that, and so God gave many opportunities to share the gospel. Here's something that I noticed, though. Many, many people that I came across that had been to church literally all of their lives, I think they were born in the baptismal, okay? They, were, they, were, they grew up in church, and when I asked them, um, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? They would say, yes, I, I think so. And I said, well, tell me why you think so. Was it, well, because... Um, I mean, I go to church, and they started listing all of these good things that they do. And I said, well, can I ask you, do you, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah, yeah, I said, I believe in Jesus. And then as I would walk them through the gospel, I would help clarify for them. And some of them, e either they weren't saved, or on the other hand, it may be that they just could not articulate this thing that we call faith in Jesus Christ. And many times in our minds... We, we can easily come to believe, wrongly so, that we are saved by faith and good works. And so what I want to do is I want to look at two passages of Scripture, and we're not going to resolve them right off the bat, but one is found in James chapter 2. And James tells us in verse 24... James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Hmm. And then in Romans, Paul has something to say about justification. Actually, Paul has quite a bit to say about justification. Um, it says in chapter Romans 4, Verse 5, and I probably should read another verse to help us understand this verse, but I'm going I'm to just jump to the chase. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Can I ask you, do you see the tension between those two verses? If you do, raise your hand and... Just let me explain maybe what your what the tension you're feeling is. I'm sorry, hands suddenly went down. In the, uh, Mary Smith. 
trust God to just who justifies the wicked. That, that part's a little. I mean, it's true because we're all wicked and he justifies us by his grace. Okay. Between James and Romans, oh. what tension do you see there, Zach? I mean, in Romans, it said we, we righteousness is credited to us because of our faith. But then it says in um, James that it's by works. Oh, okay. Well, well, faith and works, just to be fair to him. Okay. All right. Justification, and we're going to get into this, but use the word justifies there, and then he uses another phrase that is credits it to credit it, he credits it to him as righteousness, um, that it is faith, and so the one who believes, he credits as right to him as righteousness because of his faith, and yet James says we are justified not by faith alone but by works also. Now, because we, because we have failed, and I, I, I want to be careful here, we, who is we, uh, many people throughout ch- church history have failed to understand that what Paul is talking about and what James are talking about, though they use the same word justify or justifies or justified, they are talking about two very different things. And we're going to see that uh, towards the end of our study of justification when we come back to James. But we need to resolve this tension. Are we justified by faith alone or are we justified by faith plus good works? Let me ask you this question. If we are saved, I'm going to use a different word now. If we are saved by faith and good works, what problem will we immediately face? Okay. Well, we can never really know if we've done enough works, and some people will qualify them, and other people will. Okay. So, what does that do to you? It makes you stirs up doubt. Doubt, <laughs> fear. <laughs> All of your life, you will wonder: Am I doing enough for for what? Salvation. Salvation to pass this celestial test that I am in the process of taking right now, and am I going to pass or am I going to fail? And so there is this sense of uncertainty that the book of Romans, if there's any other book, it's Romans, that seeks to erase that uncertainty. Uh, John himself, in 1 John 5.13, says, These things are written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you can one day hope you will go to heaven. No, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so, yeah, that was 1 John 5, 13. There is a certainty, people, that we can have. Those who truly believe, I'm adding a word there, aren't I? Truly believe in Jesus, they can know that they have eternal life. You don't have to hope so or think so. The doubts are there for one reason and one reason only, because maybe our works are not sufficient. I imagine there are some who may wonder if they have true, genuine faith or not. That's between them and God. Um, and, and Paul certainly challenges us to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. Um, because there are certainly those who say they believe, but they truly don't. You understand what we're, I'm talking about. We talked about this last week, faith and repentance. 
So if we are saved by faith and works, then our salvation is in some measure dependent upon my performance. And if, if it's dependent upon my performance, I will live the rest of my life in fear. Unless I'm a real cocky, confident kind of guy. In which, hey, God loves me. I mean, everybody does. Why wouldn't God? And, uh, yeah. Right there, that's probably an indication that something is wrong. Um, the truth, though, is the, the entire book of Romans shows us that there is a problem with trying to be justified by works. Again, we're going to come back to James in a little bit. But we need to understand what is Paul talking about. Because it is different than what James is, even though they use the same word. Okay? Uh, Luke and Paul do this very same thing. Paul talks about receiving the Spirit. He uses that phrase. And the very common misunderstanding in our day is that Luke apparently uses it the same way. And he does not. Luke uses the word receive the Spirit as a, as a, a synonym for being baptized with the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, and so on. There's five synonyms. We went over that Saturday night. All right, so we need to understand that we, we, if we're going to stay with Paul, Paul's going to use terminology a certain way, and other authors may use terms slightly different. And the, but the, the, the way they write about it, since they are inspired by the Holy Spirit, God doesn't contradict himself. We will be able to, when we get to James 2, see the difference, okay, in what James is talking about. And we will say, aha, that's what he's talking about. Now it makes sense. Justification. Justification has two faces or two elements, two aspects to it, okay? The first... And this needs to be very clear. It is a declaration of being made righteous. We are declared righteous. It is like a courtroom type of word declaration, the, the judge pounding the gavel. And that is, um, we are, I'm sorry, did I say declared righteous? Let me back up. We are declared having no sin, all right? Justification is about declaration. God's declaration. Because Paul in Romans has built this case that it is absolutely, completely, totally impossible for unsaved fallen men to obey the law and in any way gain a righteous stand before God. Absolutely impossible. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All our righteousness... And the context is the unbeliever. All our righteousness are as filthy rags. They, they, they mean nothing. They, they fall short. They gain no access for us before the Father. We, we, if st standing in a courtroom, the gavel would be pounded, we would be declared guilty. And I, I would say hyper-guilty. Guilty beyond imagination. You know, in a courtroom, they usually bring one or a couple of accusations and you're found guilty, but there would be thousands upon thousands of declarations of guilt on our part. And we would, we would be declared guilty of all of them and, and fall short of the righteousness that God demands. Okay? Paul's point is that it is impossible to gain a righteousness from the law, by obeying the law. We can't do it. There is something in us that he later describes as the flesh that 
we, we're not we're not able to do it. That flesh, as we're going to see later, that it's got to it's got to die. It's got to lose its grip on us. Okay, we have to be freed from that death stranglehold that it has on us. Okay, I, I don't want to jump ahead of myself. So the first thing we need to see is that justification has got to be. Um, it, it has got to be a, a, a washing away of sin and a, a declaration, therefore, of innocence. You may have heard the expression justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Now, don't misunderstand. He's not saying that it is that I have never sinned. All right. The sinner's testimony is that I have sinned, but I have been rescued from my sin and been forgiven. Okay, so I'm not so just as if I had never sinned in the eyes of God. So that's a standing that is a righteous or an innocent standing before God. But that expression uh, loses the other facet of justification, and that is a declaration of righteousness. As we look into this declaration of righteousness. We need to ask the question, where does this righteousness come from? So let's, let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse 17. He says, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. All right. Whose righteousness is this? First, by faith, it says, we are declared innocent. Our sins are washed away. Number two, not only are our sins washed away, but we are now declared not just innocent, but we are declared righteous. You're just not not guilty and you're not just innocent, but you actually, I don't know how to say it in a court of law, you actually did the absolute right thing. Okay? You... you... Personify. So here's my question. Where does that righteousness come from? Why is it that, that, that God declares us righteous? Jesus. We are, we are not righteous, are we? We're, we're sinners, lost. We're, our sins are washed away. And I want you to imagine a blank slate. There's now no more sin. So where does that righteousness come from? Okay, does it come from us? No. Okay. It, it doesn't come from us because all our righteousness are as filthy rags. So it couldn't be us. And it could not be as if God is looking down the tunnel of history. Okay, I see that Mike, it was, as a saved believer in my son Jesus, he's going to do righteous acts. So I'm going to take those righteous acts and declare him right. No, that is still making me justified by my works. And Paul clearly tells us that that's not the case. We are not justified by works. He says it there in the passage that I read. Okay? We are not justified by works. We are not justified by observing the law. Galatians chapter 2. We are justified by faith alone. From faith 
to faith, beginning to end. Faith, we are justified by faith. So it's not our righteousness. Is it just a declaration of righteousness? Think about that. Is it just a declaration? You're righteous now. Okay. I would say no, because this is not just a declaration of righteousness. It is a declaration of righteousness based on something that's real, that has been revealed from heaven. So where does that righteousness come from? Okay. It has to come from God. It has to come from Jesus. It doesn't come from me. It's not just some judicial declaration you're righteous. We have the righteousness of Jesus, and I'm going to word it this way, it's been imputed to us, okay? So this second one talks about the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. He's saying that he considers all of his um, things that might make him worthy. He considers them as rubbishness that he rubbish that he may gain Christ. And verse nine says, "And be found in him that is in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith." Okay. As we turn to First Corinthians chapter one verse thirty, it says, "It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness." Jesus has become for us our righteousness, our holiness. And our redemption. Do you see what he's saying there? He has become for us. His righteousness imparted or imputed to us. Now, here's the problem that um, I'm not sure how to characterize them. If I should say hyper-Arminianism, Pelagius, those who lean towards Pelagianism. Charles Finney strongly disagreed with this concept of imputed righteousness. Um, so I'm not exactly sure where to put him per, I'm sure both, but um, his problem with this is we are not made righteous. If we're made righteous, then we do not need to live and walk a righteous life. We just simply need to depend on Jesus. Well, that's, I don't know of anyone who says that. This is a declaration. And Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to us in the courtroom, okay? I stand in the righteousness of Christ. When I am in Christ, I am in his righteousness. And yet, I need to walk out a righteous life. Now, we're going to get to that in just a little bit here when we get to James. So, I want you to see this courtroom setting that we are not just declared innocent 
But we are actually declared to be one who has righteousness. It's not our own. It's not just merely a declaration. It is the righteousness that we have as we are now clothed with Christ. All right? I am clothed with Christ because I am in Christ. And, and, and there's so much that I don't have time to get into as far as all of the blessings, the spiritual blessings that we have as a result of being in Christ. But this is, this is important because for us to go to heaven, we must be righteous. The thief that died on the cross, what righteousness did he manage to obtain of his own? What good thing did he actually do? Maybe he said to the thief, okay, but did he say that before he got saved or after he got saved? Who knows? The bottom line is Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so we have to veer away from this view that says somehow our justification depends upon my righteous works. It's not. It is that righteousness that has been revealed from heaven that we read about in the gospel and that when we believe in Jesus, we are now clothed in his righteousness. The judge looks at us. He doesn't just declare us innocent. He declares us righteous because we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Okay? Um... I want you to imagine this, and, and I meant to bring the whiteboard for this, and as I quickly scanned my notes, I forgot about this, and so I didn't bring the whiteboard. But I want you to imagine a stick figure over here. That's you and me, okay? And then I want you to imagine a cross over here, because this is how I would draw it, guys, okay? So you can see the difference. All right. There is a line that goes from you and me to the cross, and that would be labeled our sins. So the Father took our sins and placed them upon His Son Jesus to the point where God the Father punished Jesus for our sins as if Jesus had become those sins. That they, those were His. They were, he, he owned them, so to speak. They had, there was a clear transfer of our sins. It wasn't just in God's mind. Our sins were literally placed upon him to the point where, where Paul says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And again, to fully understand that, the Son of God, God come in the flesh, becoming sin, okay, my mind is beginning to explode. But he owned our sin to that degree. The Father took our sins and placed them on him. But there is a... There is an exchange that goes on here. Granted, now 2,000 years later, the exchange is made complete. When we place faith in him, the, the, the sins are now fully paid in Christ, redeemed. He has bought us. But now he imparts to us his righteousness. Inasmuch as my sins have been transferred to Jesus and he was punished for my sins... Now, his righteousness is transferred to you and me by faith, and we are, we are allowed to gain access into his kingdom. Okay? 
So I'm wanting you to see that if our sins were so placed upon him and identified with Jesus that Jesus was punished and it was considered a just punishment as if he had been the one who sinned, he, he, he suffered for those sins, even so his righteousness has been transferred to us. However, that does not mean that I don't need to live a righteous life, as Charles Finney feared. I don't know of anyone who suggests that. Certainly those of his day, and I don't know of anyone else who writes that way, but the legal standing that we have with God is both innocent and right or righteous. All right, let's now turn. Okay, let me read this. God thinks of our sin as his, and so he was punished. God thinks of his righteousness as ours, and so we are declared righteous. There is a, I call this the change by exchange. Okay? The change by the, or the holy exchange, if you will. All right. James chapter 2. Let's go there if we would. We need to understand what James is talking about because it, if, we're, if we misunderstand it, it seems as if James is saying that we are saved by faith and good works. Let's start with verse 20. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Again, notice the word that he uses here. Youthless. Useless as in worthless. Youthless? Was, I mean, he, is talk, he is going to be talking about Abraham who was youthless. Yes, indeed. Okay. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous or justified? That's the word that's used there, the Greek word justified. For what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled. And I want you to underline that word Fulfilled. That is absolutely key. In the previous verse, if you were using the NIV, underline the word made complete. <clears throat> made complete and fulfilled. That says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the exact same verse from Genesis 15 that Paul uses to prove his point that it's faith alone. What? Oh my then he concludes with this. Uh, he goes on and he says, and he was called God's friend. He's talking about a fellowship here. That sin is supposed to alienate us, but by faith and now being credited as righteousness, he is now God's friend. Okay? He has, let, let me use a, a more theological term, he has been reconciled. Okay? Verse 20, 24. You see, 
that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. When we realize that Paul is using justification as the beginning point of salvation and that James is using it to be applied to the Christian as something that he lives and walks out and is viewed as justified or righteous, that begins to start clearing things up, okay? We are saved by faith alone and not by works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you are saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. We would have something to boast about if in any way we were saved by faith and good works. But when Jesus died on the cross, he did not say, guys, we're almost there. He said, no, it is finished. All done, completed. It is finished. There's nothing more that we need to add to it. Faith is not adding. Faith is receiving. Okay? Faith is not a work. All right. So his, his focus then is by faith in Jesus, we are immediately declared righteous. This is a courtroom setting. That is not James' setting. That is not what James is trying to explain here. James is trying to help us understand what genuine faith is. And the reason why we know this is because he says the demons believe and they shudder. You see, they know all the right stuff. They've got the theology down, perhaps, but they have never repented. They have never surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Their belief is not complete. It is not genuine. All right? When he is talking then about faith being completed by works, give me a timeline of that. Faith is completed by works. Which comes first? Faith. Faith and then works. Do they happen at the same time? No, because faith, because works completes the faith. All right? If faith Excuse me, if works completes our faith, meaning that we have to believe and then later do enough good works to complete our faith, as soon as I believe in Jesus Christ, I'm not saved. I have to acquire enough good works to fulfill or complete my faith. And that's clearly not what what James is talking about, okay? We know this because of the very example that he gives. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Does anybody know what chapter in Genesis that is? I mentioned it earlier. 15. 15, great. And if you have a good footnote, you will probably have that footnoted in your Bible. And so you could cheat and just say Genesis 15. Verse? Thank you. When or what chapter did Abraham offer up Isaac as a sacrifice? Uh, three. <laughs> mm-hmm. Seven chapters after that, Genesis 22. Seven chapters after Genesis 15. 
So did Abraham not get saved until Genesis 22? But the action of offering up his son, or at least attempting to, God stopped him, that completed his faith. So did he, was he not saved until Genesis 22, till the works came along? See, that's not James' point. James' point is this, the demons, their faith is not an adequate faith. It's inadequate. How do you know this? No good works follow. When you go to the orange tree, there's no oranges. Wow, guess what? This is not an orange tree. I see a lot of mangoes, grapefruit, masquerading is oranges. I don't know, but it's not, a gra- it's not an orange tree. If it's an orange tree, it's going to produce oranges. Thank you. And so Jesus cursed the fig tree because there were no figs on it. And I'm not going to get into that. But except to say, that was a prophetic act with regard to Israel. Jesus has come to Israel. They say they believed in God, but they proved that they truly didn't by rejecting his son and refusing to repent and live a righteous life. They lived a hypocritical life. Okay? So works complete the faith They fulfill the faith. They demonstrate, is this genuine faith or not? So we need to go back. What then does James mean by justify? We can get the saved part of it, but justify. He uses justify differently than than Paul does. Paul uses justification as something, as a declaration at the moment you have, at the moment that you believe in Jesus. Okay? You have to be given and imparted this righteousness to you from Jesus because you cannot obey and observe the law in and of yourself to be declared righteous. You can't. Uh, It's sufficient so that you can go to heaven. Jesus' righteousness has got to be the seal on the deal. However, James is saying that, do you remember the... um, the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee justified himself, but the tax collector went home justified because he had truly repented and turned to God. The Pharisee did not, and so he justified himself. That means he tried to give evidence that he was a true believer in God. So he listed all of his good works. That's what James is doing. James is saying, show me your faith. Don't show me your faith by your faith. Show me your faith by your works. If you have genuine faith, you will have good works. If you have planted an orange tree, you're going to need to show me the oranges. That's what James is saying. Justify, then, is not a courtroom setting. It is a, it is a showing of one's righteousness. So I want to ask you, are you a righteous man or a righteous woman? You could say, I am because of Christ's righteousness, but you would be talking about how Paul uses it. Or you could say, I'm a righteous man because Jesus has changed me and now I live a righteous life. And so people would say to me, or to Scott over here, Scott is a righteous man. Well, how do you know that? 
Well, I see the way he lives his life, okay? And that's the other way in which the word justify is used. So when we understand that Paul is using it in a courtroom setting and James is not, it begins to make sense. Question or comment? Comment. Go for it. Sure. I was just going to say, I think it's also really important to show the example that James uses isn't like Abraham believed God, so he made a hundred sacrifices of rams. Like Abraham sacrificed his son in obedience to the Lord. And so it's... Because sometimes I think people can read this and then say, okay, so I need to, you know, do this and do this and do this, but... It's not that we just randomly do good works to show that we're righteous and that shows our faith, but it's this moment by moment of trusting in Jesus, believing in him, and then in humility and obedience, what that produces in works is our evidence of faith. Okay. So James is talking about evidence, and that is... Perhaps in a courtroom setting in which someone is, so are you a Christian or are you not? Show me the evidence. That's what James is getting at. Paul is saying, whether you're a Christian or not is on trial. Whether you go to hell or not, that's what's on trial here. Because right now the declaration is guilty. One place is faith in Jesus, and then there's a declaration of innocence and a declaration of righteousness. Those two aspects, okay? So do you understand the difference between how Paul uses justify and how James uses justify? Kate? I guess I'm just a little bit confused by that last example because I wouldn't being a Christian and going to heaven be the same thing. Like, can you can you differentiate those two? I'm sorry, differentiate. Because you said in the first case, like you're giving evidence, are you a Christian? In the second case, that's not what's up for grabs. It's are you going to hell, but I mean, I would see those as always and ever the same question. Well, yes and no. But my righteous acts flow out of my faith, okay? And then I am declared righteous. Without any works whatsoever, Paul's use of it, God says he declares us righteous. Without our works at all. The first has to do with whether we're saved or not. The second has to do with whether we are in the faith or not. Okay? One has to do with how I enter into the kingdom of God. The other asks the question, am I a true follower of Jesus Christ? Because if I am, then everything that I have received at the moment that I was saved, and we're going to get into that here in just a little bit, that is going to show itself. That's going to be the evidence. Okay? And so, Paul is not wanting to know how our righteousness is shown, because all we would say is filthy rags, but James is. Okay? So, one has to do with how do I get saved, the other has to do with how do I know that I am saved. Okay? And how I know that I am saved is by the righteousness that I walk in. I don't rely on Christ's righteousness at that point. That's what makes me declared righteous and innocent in the eyes of the Father. But how do I live this life in the kingdom of God? 
I bear fruit. And that's what's under examination. That's what when you say, he's a righteous man. Okay? So as James uses that, we are justified by faith, made complete by our good works. Okay? All right. Scott? Yeah, if uh, Abraham didn't have faith, he wouldn't have been in that place in the first place. In Genesis 22, sacrificing his son, or even wanting to follow through with it. Exactly. Granted. Mm-hmm. So definitely faith comes before your transformation um, through works. Right. Yes. Because he, he just wouldn't have tuned into the Lord at all on that mission. Okay. Mm-hmm. Justification has nothing to do with my lifestyle. It is a declaration. Okay? There is more that happens, and that's what we're going to get into under new creation. But before we do that, we want, I want to look at sanctified. <clears throat> there are... The word sanctify or sanctified is used in three different ways in the New Testament. If you could view the Christian's life from beginning to end, we would say at the moment of faith, the Holy Spirit makes him holy. Okay? Makes him holy. And, and it, it's part of that, that's the declaration. But there, is, there now is something internal that actually happens. And that's why here sanctification is different than justification. Because justification does not say that there is a change inside of me. Sanctification, though, does. Sanctification is internal. There is an internal change that takes place, okay? So I am sanctified when I am, when I am born again. We are all in the process of being sanctified. So it is now a process which... I would venture to say is the majority focus of the New Testament, the second understanding of how sanctification is used. And then when we receive our glorified bodies, when we are in heaven, we are fully sanctified. Okay, We are, we are made completely holy and sin is no more in our lives. The curse is gone. We have received our redeemed bodies, glorified bodies, just as Jesus has received his. And we, we're completely changed. Okay? Um, scripture does refer to that time. In 1 Corinthians 6.11... First Corinthians six eleven, he says this. Um, in verse nine, he says, "Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God?" This is Paul. His focus is on um, faith alone, but he says here that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. He is not saying that you're saved by your righteous works, though. That would be completely contradictory. He is saying, though, that if you plant, if, if, if you truly have an orange tree, then the orange tree produces oranges. 
Okay, some of you were grapefruits, some of you were le- melons, lemons, etc. And then he says in verse, what is it, 11. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified, past tense. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In Jesus' name, by the Spirit. So this is something that the Spirit does. Spirit washes us, sanctifies us, justifies us. Um, I want want you to be careful here just for us to think about it. Washed, sanctified, justified. Don't try and treat them as completely separate theological categories. Allow a flow here, okay, of of understanding, okay? Because being sanctified does mean a washing of sorts, okay? We are now called to be sanctified, and that is progressive. And so what I want us to do right now is I want us to look at the difference between justification and sanctification. So here's how we're going to do it, because it would take me too long to write this up on the board. So I want you to put, uh, and this is from Wayne Grudem. He's a, a theologian, and, and I, I think that he, he really brings out some good contrasting points here. There's uh, five, five of them. So here's what I want you to do. Under justification, five different things. And then you're going to put over here sanctification with corresponding five things. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you the first five things under sanctification. Okay? And again, I'm, I'm reading that, or telling you this, speaking it rather than writing it because it would take a while. Number one, under justification, it's a legal standing. Legal standing. You know, I, I, let's do this. Just give enough space. Um, if you write small, you only need about that much room. So I'm just, I'm just kidding. That's silly. Um, give yourself enough for like three long, four long words, okay, on, the, on your paper. And then put sanctification. Because I, I think what I'm going to do is instead of just giving you all of them for justification, I'm going to go down and contrast each one, Okay. So under number under sanctification number one, it's not a legal standing; it's an internal condition. Declaration, legal standing before God—that's justification. Sanctification, there truly is something that happens inside that we're going to talk about in a minute. It's not a legal standing; it's what? Sanctification is an internal condition. Something actually happens in the sinner's heart. It's not just a declaration. Number two, for justification, it's a once and for all declaration. We abide in it, okay? I am stand in, because I'm right now in Christ, I am clothed in Christ, and I therefore am clothed in his righteousness. Not just back when I got saved at age 14, even right now. So it's a once for all deal. Sanctification is different. Sanctification is a continuous, is continuous throughout our lifetime. It's continuous throughout life. It is a process. So that 
that process then is hopefully lesser to greater. But it's a process. It's a walking out. It's not a static declaration. It is progressive. All right? If you understood that. Number three, for justification, it is entirely... <laughs> You're jumping ahead of me before I finish. I'm giving you number three right now. If I can, if I can read my handwriting here. Entirely God's work. Justification is entirely God's work. It actually cannot be any of our work because then some of our justification would depend on me and we have to realize that none of my justification can depend on me. That's Paul's point, especially in Romans 4. Has nothing, my justification has nothing to do with me because faith is not an action. Faith is simply an acknowledge. It's a receiving. It's a yielding, a surrendering. That is not an action. Number three, under sanctification, we cooperate with God. <clears throat> Having begun with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? They were trying to follow the law to gain favor with God and be able to be declared more righteous, gain more grace. No, it's by the Spirit, but we cooperate with God. All right? We are called to live a holy life. So God, by His grace, by walking in the Spirit, that's how we do it. We're going to be talking about walking in the Spirit next week, though. Um, so, number three for justification, entirely God's work. Sanctification is a cooperation with God. Number four, we are perfect in this life. Justification. We are perfect in this life. When God looks at us, we are perfect. But he also realizes we are walking it out. So for sanctification, we are not perfect in this life. <laughs> Man, was that confusing. So according to God's declaration as the almighty judge... Not based upon me at all, but solely based upon his son, Mike Curtis is righteous. That's God's declaration. But in actuality, I am in the process of working sin out of my life. So this side of heaven, I will not be perfect. I realize that within the, um, the Wesleyan Methodist tradition, there is a teaching of perfectionism. Um, that is not someone who tends to be really critical in their perfections. Okay? No, it, it means that you can actually become completely sanctified this side, this side of heaven. Here's the pro I understand why they say it. it it's, it's based on just the simple logical statement that, well, if God tells us to be perfect, even as your heavenly father is perfect, then you should be able to become perfect. Okay. God also says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is there anyone here who can absolutely, without certainty, say, I love the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And if you raise your hand, you are a hypocrite. I'm calling you out. All right? So, no, we're, we're growing in it. 
Why, on the other hand, would, would Paul say in Ephesians 3 to know this love that, guess what, surpasses knowledge? Ah! I'm supposed to know something that I can never truly know? That's right. I, I am supposed to aspire to be like Jesus. I will never be like him. When he is revealed, listen to this, John, 1 John 3 says, when he, re, when he is revealed, then I will be like him. Not before, hello, not before, then I will be like him. All right? So the, the problem with this teaching of complete sanctification is that people who believe they are truly sanctified are going to have some serious issues. They will have to say they do not sin. Every time they sin, they will have to deceive themselves and say, I truly have not. Now, I just, I would never want to be in that situation. There are scriptures that speak against that anyway. So, does that also, yep. that perfectionism, does that also not make uh, Christ on the cross a bit worthless? Um, they would they would certainly not say that my salvation is dependent upon it. They would just say it's possible to become completely sanctified. So they would say that their salvation is not dependent on Christ on the cross. No, 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 no. They would they would they would not say that whether I attain complete sanctification or not determines whether I go to heaven. They would say, my salvation is completely found in Christ, but this side of heaven, I can become perfect. Okay, that's all that they're saying. Um, <clears throat> anyways, I, I, I don't... Mary? Okay, I'm, I'm really struggling to grasp all of this. Um, is this where a gown of salvation and a robe... Oh, wait, a gown of righteousness and a robe of salvation... Wait, I'm, I'm mixing them up. A gown of... Salvation and a robe of righteousness is, is that kind of what, what we're talking about? Like I almost thought you said gallon of righteousness. Oh, gallon, gallon, gallon of righteousness. Okay. Is this the kind of the same? <clears throat> that righteousness. If you don't mind, let, let me not get into that because there are different understandings of how is that my righteousness that I am actually living this out or is, or is it Christ's righteousness that I am putting on? Um, yeah, let, let, me, okay. let me not chase that one if you don't mind. Um, because I do stand in the righteousness of Christ, but I am seeking to live a righteous life. And all I'm saying is if we were... To truly be honest, and scripture would support this, we will never attain perfection this side of heaven. Okay? We won't. That is when the curse is gone, and the flesh is gone, and sin is gone, and I'm freed from it, and there's no more presence of sin. Okay? So, that's, that's when I'm glorified fully in heaven. Okay? Um, number five. That was number four. Perfect in this life for justification. Not perfect in this life, sanctification. Number five, um, justification is the same in all believers. One believer is not more justified than the other. We all have equal standing and declaration of being righteous 
Because it's not my righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness. He doesn't give me a little bit of righteousness. Thank you. And Zach over there, a bunch of his righteousness. That's not fair. I'm going to have a word with him when I get to heaven. All right? We receive the full righteousness of Christ because we're in Christ and we're clothed fully in Christ. It's a declaration. You're not just a little innocent, you're fully innocent. You just have a little bit of Jesus' righteousness. You're declared fully righteousness by the full righteousness of Jesus. All right. However, with justification, sanctification, sanctification, thank you. For sanctification, I would have to say that it is greater in some than in others. Some are more sanctified, more holy, more righteous than others. Okay. Okay. I want to spend the rest of my time on this, and and I wish we had more time, so I've got like 10 to 15 minutes to wrap this up. And we need to now really get at what has happened by being justified and sanctified, being washed by the the waters of regeneration. What now, what has actually happened? Because scripture says that we are a new creation. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna cut to the chase. Romans six six. Let's just jump into the fray here. Because I, I want us to wrestle with a theological concept here that is gonna help us, I believe, understand next week's lesson. Next week's lesson, um, I personally believe, has the ability to breathe life and hope into many people. And, and this is where I'm going to take issue with John Calvin and with Martin Luther, okay? Awesome men of God, all right, so, okay. But I, I don't stand alone in this. I disagree with their understanding of Romans 7. And I believe, I, I am not one to fight a theological battle tooth and nail unless it has tremendous implications implications for the Christian life. And I believe Romans 7 does. When you, I believe when you really understand Romans 7, and I'm not even going to tell you where I stand, but when you really understand Romans 7, it opens our understanding to the spiritual struggle that we are in and the freedom, the true freedom that we have in Christ. Amen. I, I do not believe that Luther and Calvin fully understood that. I don't believe they fully grasped it. Okay, maybe 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 I'm overstating my my case there, but I, I know where they stood on this, and it's significant. It has tremendous implications for us as Christians today. Okay, so I've I've, I've yeah, they're not here to defend themselves. <laughs> All right, so Romans seven, uh, we're going to look at next week, but I'm just going to kind of set the stage just a little bit um, for right now, and I'm just going to have you hold your questions until the end. Romans 6.6 tells us this. And by the way, I said all of that not to make you in any way think that I am somehow smarter than or more spiritual than either of those two uh, phenomenal giants of the faith. But I'm trying to prick your curiosity so that you'll study it, okay? (laughs) Study Romans 7. What is it? Verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Okay. Romans 6.6. 6. Can someone read that? Anybody? First person. Read it. Knowing. Oh, 
Okay. So nobody's going to read it. Leanne, can you read it? Go for it. Real loud. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Okay. We should no longer be slaves to sin. By the way, that is not hypothetical. We are no longer slaves to sin. Okay? That is not a temporary, well, Christ saved us, but careful, because you're, you be, you're going to become a slave to sin if you're not careful. No, you will not become a slave to sin. And we're going to get into that next week. But can someone read that verse from the NASB? Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. My bad. Stop right there. I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, I, I, then who has the King James? I know you'd be like, I got you, I got you, I got you. Okay, what version do you have? Okay, go for it, read it. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified. That's what he wants. Okay, finish the verse. Knowing that our old man was crucified with him, and that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Okay, so praise God, my dad was died as a result of this and not me, right? <laughs> I remember when Petra came out with their song, Killing My Old Man, and I thought, this is, this is so biblical, I can't believe it. And I started reading it, and oh, so that's what they mean. Yeah. <laughs> what is the old man? What is the old man? Okay, our old self. So, I... I Old self is, is a fine translation, okay? It's just not literal. And I wanted to... This is the old man. This is the old me. I want to be careful. This is not the old psychological self, me, okay? That's, we could go there in our present way of thinking about self. Self-realization. Oh, really? Um, so this is the old man. This is the old me, this is me with the way I thought. This is the me with the way I lived. Where is that old man now? He is dead. He is dead. Okay. <laughs> the old man is dead. Now let's read... <clears throat> um, Here we go. Galatians 5, 24. <laughs> Galatians 5, 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh NIV says sinful nature. I understand why they translate it that way. Um, with its passions and desires, the flesh, the sarks, has been crucified with its fleshly desires, with its passions and desires. Chapter 6, verse 14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Maybe that's going to help us understand a little bit more. But then it says in chapter 5, verse 17, 
For the flesh, or sinful nature, desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. And if you were led by the spirit, you're no longer under law. Okay, so is the flesh crucified, or is he not crucified? He's He's the living dead! There we go. Is the flesh is the flesh crucified? Is the flesh, the sinful nature, crucified? What is the flesh, by the before we answer? What is the flesh in relation to the old man? I'm sorry. Well, sinful nature. Right, the sinful nature. It's works. Show me the relation between the old man. And there was light. Show me the relation between the old man and the flesh. The old man was ruled by his flesh. Good, I like that. Controlled by his flesh. It was the it what is what empowered the old man. Okay. Now, having said that, how is it that Paul says that the flesh? has been crucified with its passions and desires, but yet we battle it. Okay, it is something that we have crucified since faith in Christ, but that we crucify it each day. Okay. Before the old man didn't battle with it. And this is true. He may have been distraught by it. He may have not liked what the flesh made him do. Right. Okay. So now that you see this contrast, like the spirit and the flesh, it seems like there's an inward battle taking place now between the okay. flesh and the spirit, which was not present when he was in the old man in the flesh that ruled his passions. Okay. Are we saying that both have been crucified? The flesh and the old man have both been crucified. Yes. <clears throat> but because they're different, the old man is is the old me, and I'm not going to get into other metaphors like resurrecting the old man, but the old man truly is dead because the new me has taken its place, so to speak. And that is not me anymore, okay? The old man. But the flesh was what empowered the old man. And the question is, it seems as if we still battle it, but it's been crucified. How can that be? You want want to give us that at it, Leah? Yeah, I think that the new uh, me wants to be obedient. And this is true. And follow what God wants us to do. But there's, we're still uh, faced with temptation. And so we have to constantly make an effort to try and overcome that. Okay. Okay. This, Scott? I, I don't know, maybe off the mark. Is, he's, is what Paul writes in Romans uh, 5, 20, and 21? 
says the law was added so the trespass might increase what he's saying is the law was added so that the awareness of sin might Would become increase, fully but where okay. sin increased, grace increased all the more. So okay. where, where sin is increasing, grace is increasing. So it's, and then he goes on to say that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we're still dealing with um, sin, but the compensation for that is the, the is grace. So we still have that battle every day between sin and grace. Okay. Sorry. Let's All right. <laughs> um, about anything, understand the word crucify uh, is, you would have to admit that that is metaphorical, okay? Because the flesh is not, as far as we know, it's not a thing that we can use a sword to kill. It, this is spiritual. Paul is using this word to help us understand a spiritual concept. And so, <coughs> let me give you an illustration and then I'll explain. I remember when I was a kid, um, there was a bee, a, a bumblebee, <clears throat> and he was flying around me. And I knocked it to the ground, stepped on it, and it was dead. And then I hit it with my hand, and the stinger went right into my hand, and man, did I scream bloody murder. It was dead, but it still stung me. How is it dead, but still it could sting me? Okay? Now, we could get into the mechanics of, of that, and it, well, it didn't technically sting me, I stung myself on it by how I hit it. I squeezed the the uh, the stinger out of his abdomen with its poison, and man, it might the center of my palm swelled like a like a, a a quarter, like the size of a quarter in my palm, and it just swelled up. And for years and years, I had a a red point exactly where the stinger got me, and I had it for a long time. I, I don't know. I don't know. It eventually disappeared. However, it still stung me. So, in a nutshell, understand this is, this is a metaphor that Paul is using to help us understand a spiritual concept that we are going to get into more next week. Because whatever the flesh, whatever life we might allow it or power we might allow it, we overcome that by walking in the Spirit. So only our first half, maybe a little bit more of next week, will be in Romans 7. The other is going to be in Romans 8, and that is walking in the Spirit. Okay? And how do we walk in the Spirit? Galatians, you know, Romans 8 and, and Galatians 5 here, there is, there is a key in walking in the Spirit that will allow the sin, sin empowers the flesh, which now leads me to sin, okay? And, and we're going to get into that in Romans 7 as well. But 
when the flesh is crucified, that means its control over me has been broken. Its control over me has been broken. I am freed from it. However, that does not mean that I, I can never yield to it again. Okay? The world has been crucified to me and me to the world. But guess what? I can yield to it. But the, the, the power and the attraction of the world, it's seduction that I could not escape. That has been broken. And the illustration that I used one sermon was we are, as unbelievers, lost in our sin, in bondage to our sin. It's like having chains around our wrists and our ankles. And we are, we're, 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 we're hanging there steadfast against that wall. The door is locked. When I place faith in Jesus Christ, the chains are broken. The cell door is unlocked and it can never get locked again. And I am, I walk out of that cell free. But I told you, I said, you know what? Here's the way we think. We can walk right back in that cell. The cell door is not going to get locked. The chains aren't going to wrap themselves around my wrists anymore. But I can sit in that cell. And I can live in that. It has, its mastery is broken. But I can still allow myself to submit to it. I have power to speak the word in the authority of Jesus Christ and walk in freedom. But the more I yield to the flesh and less to the spirit, it begins to blind me and I begin to sit in my cell and imagine how much in bondage I am. But I am not. You may remember the story of General Wainwright in which at the end of World War II he was captured. He, he, he was uh, MacArthur gave him the command of the Philippines. He lost the Philippines to uh, the overrunning Japanese. He was put into a concentration camp. <clears throat> he, he and his men <coughs> were emaciated by the end of World War II, but still alive. The war ended, but the commandant, the Japanese commandant, never told Wainwright that the war was over. Wainwright continued to obey the commandant as if the commandant was in charge. Months later, a man came to the fence that enclosed him and said, what are you doing? The war is over. The Allies have won. Japan, Germany, they lost. History tells us that General Wainwright, emaciated, no weaponry to my knowledge, walks into the commandant's office and he says, your commander-in-chief surrendered to my commander-in-chief and I am in charge right now and I order you to release all of these prisoners. We are free. They had been free for months and they were just living as if they were prisoners. And this is the mirage that Satan wants us to, to be held and captivated by, that we are still prisoners of sin. And Romans tells us we are no longer prisoners of sin. The problem is we become too content sitting in the prison cell. 
We have everything available to us and all of the spiritual blessings in Christ to live in freedom by walking in the spirit. But we have made a choice. I'm not going to walk in the spirit right now. And I am going to sit in this cell because I'm in bondage and there's nothing else I can do. What a lie. And as long as we reinforce this lie, the longer we will remain in that bondage. And so the key is walking in the authority of Christ and in the power of the Spirit. And this is what it means to walk in the Spirit, okay? To walk in the the authority of Christ and in the Spirit's power. So we're going to talk about that next week. And this is more than just positive mental thinking, okay? This is truth that the enemy combats us with with lies. And if he can combat with lies that you're a prisoner and that you can't escape this sin and oh, you've tried and you've tried, but you're sitting in the prison cell, you just succumb to the prison cell, right? Right? I mean, I've worked with enough guys who have been in addictions and they have yielded to the prison cell. But I've also seen guys who have said, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. And they gain the keys of what it means to walk in the spirit. And I've seen so many of them walk in freedom. They live in Romans 8 and they choose not to live in Romans 7. We'll talk about that next week. Let me close in prayer. Father... Thank you for the power and the authority of your word. It is truth. Set us free with this truth. And God, though the flesh has been crucified, may we see it crucified, mortified every single day, not succumbing to its seductions or its controls, but walking in this freedom. God, I pray, equip us with your truth that we would walk in your spirit and be so filled regularly with your spirit that we would walk in that freedom that you've called us to. Please, God, no longer in bondage, freedom. This is what we want, that intimacy with you, God. Side-by-side fellowship, that conversation, that we would become everything that you want us to be, God. Not as defeated foes, but as valiant warriors in Christ. In Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, So here's what I'm going to do. If you happen to have those cards floating around, I just don't want... It never made it to a lot of the places over here. Um, So what I'm going to say is if you could look at those afterwards, we're going to break up into our small groups of three, whatever three you choose. <coughs> and uh, w- where is the card, the, uh, the large card? We're missing the large card. Hey, guys, the, the invitation card. Got hope? Where is that? It's this big. Where is it? Got hope? So I'm the way around the doors with it right now, trying it out, see if it works. <laughs> oh, see if they'll come. So we have lost that. We'll, we'll find it. We'll find it. Okay. Um, but these, and 
There's one more of these, too. It's the all-white one. So if you guys find it, if you could turn it up. If you kidnapped it, could you please release our prisoner? Anyway, we'll talk about it later. Break up your group three. Oh, there we go.